I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Hey listeners, we have an ask of you. Between reading and rereading resources, reaching out to content experts, and reviewing our material, this podcast takes time, effort, and resources to share it with you every week. We are humbled and grateful for the listener and affiliate interest over the past several months and the scores of messages received letting us know that this podcast has incrementally improved their test prep has been inspiring. Special thanks to the community for engaging and interacting with the show. We want to keep the podcast focused on content that informs, prepares, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. We've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. If pushing pediatrics is a part of your day or week, and you love what we're doing, please visit the link in any of our episode guides and support us any way you can today. Hey guys, have you been thinking about joining MedBridge to access the PCS prep program, but just haven't jumped on it yet? Well, we have a special offer for you. We partnered with MedBridge to offer you all a special discount code on their subscriptions. You can either go onto their MedBridge page and use the code PUSHINGPEDS for $150 off of your subscription, or click on the link on the episode summary to go directly to our Pushing Pediatrics page. Follow us, but not studying for the PCS exam? That's okay. You can still use this discount code as well. Share it with your colleagues and other friends who may be studying for their other specialty exams. You all know how much we utilized MedBridge during our studying and how we based our entire study plan off of their content. So take advantage of this special offer and purchase your MedBridge subscription today. Hey guys, we have talked a lot about how we use the MedBridge PCS prep course to develop our study plan and as an awesome supplemental resource for the PCS exam. Not only are there copious amounts of videos, but they also include practice exams, recommended readings, and other resources to add to your toolbox. To celebrate Physical Therapy Month, MedBridge is running a special on their premium subscription for just $225 if you use the code PTM. Pushing peds. You can also click on the link in the episode notes. 
These subscriptions are good for one year of content and gives you premium access, including their PCS prep content. Even if you are not studying for the PCS, you can still use this discount code for continuing education credits. Share it with your colleagues and other friends who may be studying for their other specialty exams. Hurry, this special priced PT month promotion ends on October 31st. This week, we are continuing on with the clinical summaries. We are on to spinal cord injury. We're going to refer to it as SCI from here on out most of the time. There are actually two clinical summaries for spinal cord injury, adult and pediatric adolescent. The pediatric one does refer back to the adult SCI one at times, so it may be worth it to look at both. SCI causes partial or complete paralysis of voluntary musculature innervated caudal to the lesion and results in impaired sensation and abnormalities in muscle tone, including spasticity, spasms, clonus, and flaccidity. Damage can also disrupt functioning of the respiratory, cardiovascular, GI, genitourinary, and endocrine systems. Some common sequelae of SCI both in adults and children, include pressure ulcers, pain, pneumonia, DVTs and pulmonary embolisms, cardiovascular deconditioning, cardiovascular disease, joint contractures, osteoporosis and fractures, heterotropic ossification, and UTIs. Additional sequelae seen in pediatric cases include neuromuscular scoliosis, hip subluxation, and decreased levels of community participation and quality of life. According to the Pediatric Clinical Summary, almost all individuals injured during childhood will develop neuromuscular scoliosis, and hip subluxation occurs in 100% of children injured before 5 years of age and in 94% of children injured before 10 years of age. Let's start by going over some brief review of SCI that encompasses both adult and pediatric SCI. We will touch on this later in the episode, but SCIs are classified using the Asia Impairment Scale. This classifies the level of neurological injury as well as the completeness of the injury. A motor examination and sensory examination are completed by manual muscle testing and light touch pinprick sensations, respectfully. When motor testing, you can presume that the motor level is the same as the sensory level for neurological levels C1 through C4 and T through through L1. The following muscles are key muscles when motor testing. C5, elbow flexors. C6, wrist extensors. C7, elbow extensors. C8, finger flexors to the middle finger, T1, small finger abductors, L2, hip flexors, L3, knee extensors, L4, angle dorsiflexors, L5, long toe extensors, and S1, angle plantar flexors. This is so important to know. It will come up again as we talk about brachial plexus, and it will then come up again when we talk about spina bifida a little bit as well. I like to remember the motor levels using movement myself. For me, I remember the upper extremity is like shooting a basketball, and then the lower extremity is like an exaggerated walk. If I do the movements when I'm just sitting in my chair, it helps me to remember the different levels. 
The sensory level is defined as the most caudal level of the spinal cord with normal sensory function for both pinprick and light touch. The motor level is defined as the most caudal level with greater than three out of five strength in the key muscles. Muscle strength in all key muscles above this level must test five out of five. The single neurological level is the most caudal level of the spinal cord with normal sensory and motor function on both sides of the body, provided there is normal sensory and motor function rostrally. Finally, the Asia Impairment Scale classifies the injury by completeness. Asia A refers to a complete injury. No motor or sensory function is preserved in the sacral segments S4 to S5. Asia B refers to a sensory incomplete injury. Sensory but not motor function is preserved below the neurological level and includes the sacral segments S4, S5 and no motor function is preserved more than three levels below the motor level on either side of the body. Asia C refers to a motor complete injury. Motor function is preserved below the neurological level and more than half of key muscle functions below the single neurological level of injury have a muscle grade less than three. Asia D refers to a motor incomplete injury. Motor function is preserved below the neurological level and at least half of key muscle functions below the neurological level of injury have a muscle grade of three or greater. Last, Asia E is considered normal. If sensory and motor function are graded as normal in all segments and the patient had a prior deficit, then the grade is E. A person without an initial spinal cord injury does not receive an Asia impairment scale grade. Patients with SCI can also be classified based on clinical presentation. Central cord syndrome is when weakness is more pronounced in the upper extremities than the lower extremities, and sacral sparing is present. I think about this one as a man in a barrel. The man is in a barrel, his legs are pretty functional, but doesn't have great functional use of his arms if he's in a barrel. Brown-Sicard syndrome is when motor and proprioceptive deficits are more severe ipsilateral to the lesion and pinprick and temperature sensation are more severely impaired contralateral to the lesion. In this syndrome, the ALS tract is what is damaged and tends to be from something like a stab wound. Anterior cord syndrome is when proprioception is preserved, but there is a variable loss of muscle function and sensitivity to pinprick and temperature. Conus medullaris is when there is flaccid paralysis of the lower extremities and areflexic bladder and bowel are present. In some cases, sacral reflexes are retained. Cauda equina syndrome is when there is also a flaccid paralysis of the lower extremities and the patient has an areflexic bladder and bowel. The symptoms and signs of cauda equina syndrome tend to be mostly lower motor neuron in nature, while those of conus medullaris syndrome are a combination of lower motor neuron and upper motor neuron effects. Children may not recognize certain signs and symptoms that accompany sequelae that are seen in adults, such as the signs of autonomic dysreflexia or pathological fracture. DVTs are less common in younger children, and spasticity is less common overall due to a higher incidence of complete paraplegia in children. And children may have more complications as well, due to the fact that they will live more years than someone who is injured in adulthood. The leading cause of SCI for all age groups is motor vehicle crashes, 
with sports-related injuries also being a high incidence in the 13 to 15-year age group. Level of injury varies throughout the age span. Paraplegia and complete injuries are more common in younger children than in older children. Younger children with tetraplegia often sustain high lesions, C1 to C3, and older children and teenagers with tetraplegia are more likely to have lower lesions, C4 to C8. Pathoanatomical features are similar to adults. The trauma typically injures both the neurons and the blood vessels at the level of injury. After SCI, the functioning of the spinal cord caudal to the lesion is temporarily impaired. During this period of spinal shock, somatic and autonomic spinal reflexes below the lesion are absent or depressed. As spinal shock resolves, spinal reflexes generally resume. There are, however, a few features that are unique to pediatric SCI. One includes spinal cord injury without radiographic abnormality. This occurs in approximately 64% of younger children and 19 to 22% in older children. It is not detected on plain x-rays. However, damage can be seen in about 66% of cases on MRI. Delayed onset SCI occurs in up to 50% of children with SCI. Birth injuries are more common in the cervical spine. Last, child abuse such as shaken baby syndrome can also result in a spinal cord injury. As we talked about earlier, the Asia Impairment Scale is used to classify SCI. It was created for adults, but there are guidelines in place for children. For children older than six years old, Interrater reliability is high for trained testers. It has been deemed too complex for the cognitive abilities of most children under six years of age and some children under eight years of age. When completing a review of systems, we should note potential secondary conditions, including integumentary, pain, cardiovascular, pulmonary, and musculoskeletal. There's also a list of questions that one should consider asking either the parents or the child, depending on the age. We will let you take a look at those yourself as the list is lengthy and easier to absorb if you read it rather than listen. Tests and measures that should be completed for the musculoskeletal system include passive range of motion, postural alignment, bony alignment, and pain. For the neuromuscular system, muscle strength, volitional movement, sensation, spasticity and spasms, and balance for standing and sitting as appropriate. Some outcome measures for pediatrics include the WeFIM-2, the PEDI, the Pediatric Power Wheelchair Screening Test, the WeFIM, the Hoffer Scale, the Shriners Ambulation Scale, the PEDS-QL, the CAPE, and the SFA. Prognosis for children is not much different than it is for adults. Functional prognosis tends to depend on the level of injury, the completeness of injury, and age. We will briefly go over with you some functional expectations for motor complete injuries based on level. The chart in the clinical summary makes it very easy to understand and read, so we highly encourage you to read through these. We're going to start with the cervical injuries. For bed mobility, C1 through C4, they will be dependent. C5 will need assistance. C6 can be independent with possible use of equipment. And C7 can be independent. For transfers, 
C1 through C4 will be dependent. C5 will be dependent. C6 may have some independence with or without a transfer board. And C7 can be independent and may need a transfer board. For wheelchairs, C1 through C4 can be independent with a power wheelchair using their head, chin, mouth, or tongue to control. C5 can be independent with a power chair using a hand control with a splint. C6 can be independent with a power wheelchair or manual wheelchair with a power wheelchair maybe being used more frequently in the community. And C7 can be independent with a manual wheelchair. For pressure relief, C1 through C4 will be dependent in bed or in a manual wheelchair, but can be independent using a power tilt with a power wheelchair. C5 will be dependent in bed or in a manual wheelchair, but may be independent using a power tilt with a power wheelchair. C6 can be independent by leaning to the side, and C7 can be independent using a push-up. Let's move on to lower level injuries. For a manual wheelchair, T2 to T10 can be independent indoors and in the community, as well as T11 through T12. L3 through S2 may not need a manual wheelchair except for long distances and recreation. For ambulation, T2 to T10 can perform this for exercise only using KAFOs or RGOs and forearm crutches or a walker, but it's not practical for T2 to T6. T11 through T12 may be able to ambulate indoors with KAFOs or RGOs and forearm crutches. They can possibly do some stairs using a railing as well. And L3 through S2 may be able to ambulate indoors and in the community using AFOs and possibly forearm crutches or a cane. For driving, all levels T2 and below could drive independently using hand controls, with L3 to S2 possibly being able to use the automatic transmission. Intervention is detailed well in both the adult spinal cord injury clinical summary as well as the pediatric one. We recommend looking at both. Key elements of physical therapy intervention for SCI include patient and family education and training, functional and gait training, therapeutic exercise, and equipment recommendations. A few things to consider include compensatory training, bed mobility, transfer training, and mobility training, whether it be in ambulation or wheelchair skills. Remember, all interventions need to be age appropriate. Readiness for independence should be considered based on the child's developmental stage. Education of both the child and the parent or caregiver is also a large focus of intervention for pediatric SCI as the child grows and develops. Reevaluation as the child grows is absolutely critical. This way, you can successfully screen the child for any additional medical complications and readiness for new skills. Function in school and within the community is also very important to consider, and we should also consider sexuality and reproductive health concerns and refer the child and the family to additional members of the care team and medical providers when necessary. Other interventions to consider that are pediatric specific include power wheelchair training, floor play, equipment needs, and health and wellness. Remember, a child as young as 18 to 24 months may be trained to use a power wheelchair.
There are, of course, some differences in the continuum of care between children with SCI and adults with SCI. Care really depends on the child's age and the continuum in acute care and inpatient rehab of an older child may be similar to an adult. In the acute care setting, the focus is on education of the child and parent or caregiver, prevention of secondary complications, and discharge planning. Inpatient rehabilitation continues with education and functional activities are taught as developmentally appropriate. In home care, the goals are usually education-focused to allow for independence. Outpatient rehabilitation may be warranted several times throughout the child's life to work on learning new skills or manage complications. School-based physical therapy services will address the needs specific to the child's functioning in school. As the child transitions into adulthood, it is important to find one that preferably specializes in SCI. At this point, parents and caregivers should be educated to allow for a smooth transition. The adult SCI clinical summary lists some precautions to be aware of that also apply to pediatrics. These include autonomic dysreflexia, orthostatic hypotension, DVTs, pressure ulcers, appropriate fitting equipment, avoiding overstretching of muscles such as the low back, avoid activities that may place excessive stress on bones with severe osteoporosis, and provide secretion clearance for those with ineffective coughs and prevent injury from falling by proper guarding. Special considerations for children include hip subluxation, scoliosis, and decreased skin and pain perception. Take a look through the common medications utilized with SCI. These are listed in the adult clinical summary. Just familiarize yourself with some of the names in case you get a question with one in a case study or if it is an answer to a question. You should also be aware of any side effects. One example given in the clinical summary is baclofen. Baclofen is commonly used for spasticity management but can be sedating. Psychosocial aspects for children with SCI can differ from adults. Young children may not understand the implications of an SCI and adolescents may be more complex for a child with an SCI. Just think about it. If you were in your stage of puberty, your teen angst years, and you had a spinal cord injury, there's a lot of psychosocial aspects that kind of go along with that. Parents and caregivers may also feel guilty about the child's injury, which is something to be aware of as a provider. Providing appropriate referrals is necessary in these cases. Like we said earlier in the episode, review both the pediatric and the adult clinical summaries as the pediatric document refers back to the adult one frequently. We use information from both to blend into this one episode and make it concise. There are also additional resources through Campbell, PCS Advantage, and MedBridge. And on Friday, we're going to go through a spinal cord injury case study from the case files book in which we are going to review almost all of this information again. So I feel like by the end of this week, you guys are going to have a really good handle on spinal cord injury. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.